The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 9, Part C The intense heat, for it was now noon, obliged the travelers to look out for a shady recess, where they might rest for a few hours, and the neighboring thickets, abounding with wild grapes, raspberries, and figs, promised them grateful refreshment. Soon after, they turned from the road into a grove, whose thick foliage entirely excluded the sunbeams, and where a spring, gushing from the rock, gave coolness to the air. And, having alighted and turned the horses to graze, Annette and Ludovico ran to gather fruit from the surrounding thickets, of which they soon returned with an abundance. The travelers, seated under the shade of a pine and cypress grove, and on turf, and rich with such a profusion of fragrant flowers as Emily had scarcely ever seen, even among the Pyrenees, took their simple repast, and viewed, with new delight, beneath the dark umbrage of gigantic pines, the glowing landscape stretching to the sea. Emily and Dupont gradually became thoughtful and silent, but Annette was all joy and loquacity, and Ludovico was gay, without forgetting the respectful distance which was due to his companions. The repast being over, Dupont recommended Emily to endeavor to sleep during these sultry hours, and, desiring the servants would do the same, said he would watch the while. But Ludovico wished to spare him this trouble, and Emily and Annette, wearied with traveling, tried to repose while he stood guard with his trombone. When Emily, refreshed by slumber, awoke, she found the sentinel asleep on his post and Dupont awake, but lost in melancholy thought. As the sun was yet too high to allow them to continue their journey, and as it was necessary that Ludovico, after the toils and trouble he had suffered, should finish his sleep, Emily took this opportunity of inquiring by what accident Dupont became Montney's prisoner, and he, pleased with the interest this enquiry expressed, and with the excuse it gave him for talking to her of himself, he immediately answered her curiosity. I came into Italy, madam, said Dupont, in the service of my country. In an adventure among the mountains, our party, engaging with the bands of Montagny, was routed, and I, with a few of my comrades, was taken prisoner. When they told me whose captive I was, the name of Montagny struck me, for I remembered that Madame Charon, your aunt, had married an Italian of that name, and that you had accompanied them into Italy. It was not, however, till some time after, that I became convinced this was the same Montagny, or learned that you, madame, was under the same roof with myself. I will not pain you by describing what were my emotions upon this discovery, which I owed to a sentinel, whom I had so far won to my interest that he granted me many indulgences, one of which was very important to me, and somewhat dangerous to myself. But he persisted in refusing to convey any letter or notice of my situation to you, for he justly dreaded the discovery and the consequent vengeance of Montagny. 
He, however, enabled me to see you more than once. You are surprised, madame, and I will explain myself. And, at length, I gained so far upon the pity or the avarice of the man, that he gave me the means of walking on the terrace. Emily now listened, with very anxious attention, to the narrative of Dupont, who proceeded. In granting this indulgence, he knew that he had nothing to apprehend from a chance of my escaping from a castle, which was vigilantly guarded, and the nearest terrace of which rose over a perpendicular rock. He shewed me also, continued Dupont, a door concealed in the cedar wainscot of the apartment where I was confined, which he instructed me how to open, and which, leading into a passage, formed within the thickness of the wall that extended far along the castle, finally opened in an obscure corner of the eastern rampart. I have since been informed that there are many passages of the same kind concealed within the prodigious walls of that edifice, and which were, undoubtedly, contrived for the purpose of facilitating escapes in time of war. Through this avenue, at the dead of night, I often stole to the terrace, where I walked with the utmost caution, lest my steps should betray me to the sentinels on duty in distant parts, for this end of it, being guarded by high buildings, was not watched by soldiers. In one of these midnight wanderings, I saw a light in a casement that overlooked the rampart, and which, I observed, was immediately over my prison chamber. It occurred to me that you might be in that apartment, and, with the hope of seeing you, I placed myself opposite the window. Emily, remembering the figure that had formerly appeared on the terrace, and which had occasioned her so much anxiety, exclaimed, It was you then, Monsieur Dupont, who occasioned me much foolish terror. My spirits were, at that time, so much weakened by long-suffering, that they took alarm at every hint. Dupont, after lamenting that he had occasioned her any apprehension, added, As I rested on the wall opposing your casement, the consideration of your melancholy situation and of my own called from me involuntary sounds of lamentation, which drew you, I fancy, to the casement. I saw there a person, whom I believed to be you. Oh, I will say nothing of my emotion at that moment. I wish to speak, but prudence restrained me, till the distant footstep of a sentinel compelled me suddenly to quit my station. It was some time before I had another opportunity of walking, for I could only leave my prison when it happened to be the turn of one man to guard me. Meanwhile, I became convinced from some circumstances related by him that your apartment was over mine, and when again I ventured forth, I returned to your casement, where again I saw you, but without daring to speak. I waved my hand, and you suddenly disappeared. Then it was that I forgot my prudence and yielded to lamentation. Again you appeared. You spoke. I heard the well-known accent of your voice. And at that moment, my discretion would have forsaken me again, had I not heard also the approaching steps of a soldier, when I instantly quitted the place, though not before the man had seen me. He followed down the terrace, 
and gained so fast upon me that I was compelled to make use of a stratagem ridiculous enough to save myself. I had heard of the superstition of many of these men, and I uttered a strange noise with the hope that my pursuer would mistake it for something supernatural, and desist from pursuit. Luckily for myself I succeeded. The man, it seems, was subject to fits, and the terror he suffered threw him into one. By which accident I secured my retreat. A sense of the danger I had escaped, and the increased watchfulness which my appearance had occasioned among the sentinels, deterred me ever after from walking on the terrace. But, in the stillness of the night, I frequently beguiled myself with an old lute procured for me by a soldier, which I sometimes accompanied with my voice, and sometimes, I will acknowledge, with the hope of making myself heard by you, but it was only a few evenings ago that this hope was answered. I then thought I heard a voice in the wind calling me, yet even then I feared to reply, lest the sentinel at the prison door should hear me. Was I right, madame? In this conjecture, was it you who spoke? Yes, replied Emily with an involuntary sigh. You was right indeed. Dupont, observing the painful emotions, which this question revived, now changed the subject. In one of my excursions through the passage, which I have mentioned, I overheard a singular conversation, said he. In the passage, said Emily with surprise. I heard it in the passage, said Dupont, but it proceeded from an apartment, adjoining the wall, within which the passage wound, and the shell of the wall was there so thin and was also somewhat decayed, that I could distinctly hear every word, spoken on the other side. It happened that Montigny and his companions were assembled in the room, and Montigny began to relate the extraordinary history of the lady, his predecessor, in the castle. He did, indeed, mention some very surprising circumstances, and whether they were strictly true, his conscience must decide. I fear it will determine against him. But you, madame, have doubtless heard the report which he designs should circulate on the subject of that lady's mysterious fate. I have, sir, replied Emily, and I perceive that you doubt it. I doubted it before the period I am speaking of, rejoined Dupont, but some circumstances mentioned by Montigny greatly contributed to my suspicions. The account I then heard almost convinced me that he was a murderer. I trembled for you, the more so that I had heard the guests mention your name in a manner that threatened your repose, and knowing that the most impious men are often the most superstitious, I determined to try whether I could not awaken their consciences and awe them from the commission of the crime I dreaded. I listened closely to Montigny, and in the most striking passages of his story, I joined my voice and repeated his last words in a disguised and hollow tone. But was you not afraid of being discovered? said Emily. I was not, replied Dupin, for I knew that if Montigny had been acquainted with the secret of this passage, he would not have confined me in the apartment to which it led. I knew also from better authority that he was ignorant of it. The party, for some time, appeared inattentive to my voice, but at length 
were so much alarmed that they acquitted the apartment, and, having heard Montigny order his servants to search it, I returned to my prison, which was very distant from this part of the passage. I remember perfectly to have heard of the conversation you mentioned, said Emily. It spread a general alarm among Montigny's people, and I will own I was weak enough to partake of it. Monsieur Dupont and Emily thus continued to converse of Montigny, and then of France, and of the plan of their voyage. When Emily told him that it was her intention to retire to a convent in Languedoc, where she had been formally treated with much kindness, and from thence to write to her relation Monsieur Carnel, and inform him of her conduct. There she designed to wait, till La Boulet should again be her own, whither she hoped her income would sometime permit her to return. For Dupont now taught her to expect that the estate of which Montigny had attempted to defraud her was not irrecoverably lost, and again he congratulated her on her escape from Montigny, who, he had not a doubt, meant to have detained her for life. The possibility of recovering her aunt's estates for Valancourt and herself lighted up a joy in Emily's heart, such as she had not known for many months. But she endeavored to conceal this from Monsieur Dupont, lest it should lead him to a painful remembrance of his rival. They continued to converse till the sun was declining in the west, when Dupont awoke Ludovico, and they set forward on their journey. Gradually descending the lower slopes of the valley, they reached the Arno, and wound along its pastoral margin for many miles. Delighted with the scenery around them, and with the remembrances which its classic waves revived. At a distance they heard the gay song of the peasants among the vineyards, and observed the setting sun tint the waves with yellow luster, and twilight draw a dusky purple over the mountains, which, at length, deepened into night. Then Luciola, the firefly of Tuscany, was seen to flash its sudden sparks among the foliage, while the cicala, with its shrill note, became more clamorous than even during the noonday heat, loving best the hour when the English beetle, with the less offensive sound, wins. His small but sullen horn, as oft he rises, missed the twilight path, against the pilgrim born in heedless hum. Collins the travelers crossed the Arno by moonlight at a ferry, and, learning that Pisa was distant only a few miles down the river, they wished to have proceeded thither in a boat, but as none could be procured, they set out on their wearied horses for that city. As they approached it, the vale expanded into a plain, variegated with vineyards, corn, olives, and mulberry groves but it was late before they reached its gates, where Emily was surprised to hear the busy sound of footsteps and the tones of musical instruments, as well as to see the lively groups that filled the streets, and she almost fancied herself again at Venice. But here was no moonlight sea, no gay gondolas dashing the waves, no Palladian palaces to throw enchantments over the fancy, 
and lead it into the wilds of fairy story. The Arnaud rolled through the town, but no music trembled from the balconies over its waters. It gave only the busy voices of sailors on board vessels just arrived from the Mediterranean, the melancholy heaving of the anchor, and the shrill boatswain's whistle, sounds which, since that period, have there sunk almost into silence. They then served to remind Dupont that it was probable he might hear of a vessel sailing soon from France from this port, and thus be spared the trouble of going to Leghorn. As soon as Emily had reached the inn, he went, therefore, to the quay to make his enquiries. But after all the endeavors of himself and Ludovico, they could hear of no bark, destined immediately for France, and the travelers returned to their resting place. Here also Dupont endeavored to learn where his regiment then lay, but could acquire no information concerning it. The travelers retired early to rest, after the fatigues of this day, and, on the following, rose early, and without pausing to view the celebrated antiquities of the place, or the wonders of its hanging tower, pursued their journey in the cooler hours through a charming country, rich with wine and corn and oil. The Apennine, no longer awful or even grand, here softened into the beauty of sylvan and pastoral landscape, and Emily, as she descended them, looked down delighted on Leghorn, and its spacious bay, filled with vessels, and crowned with these beautiful hills. She was no less surprised and amused, on entering this town, to find it crowded with persons in the dresses of all nations, a scene which reminded her of a Venetian masquerade, such as she had witnessed at the time of the carnival. But here was bustle without gaiety, and noise instead of music, while elegance was to be looked for only in the waving outlines of the surrounding hills. Monsieur Dupont, immediately on their arrival, went down to the quay, where he heard of several French vessels, and of one that was to sail in a few days for Marseilles, from whence another vessel could be procured without difficulty to take them across the Gulf of Lyons toward Narbonne, on the coast not many leagues from which the city he understood the convent was seated, to which Emily wished to retire. He, therefore, immediately engaged with the captain to take them to Marseilles, and Emily was delighted to hear that her passage to France was secured. Her mind was now relieved from the terror of pursuit, and the pleasing hope of soon seeing her native country, that country which held Valancourt, restored to her spirits a degree of cheerfulness, such as she had scarcely known since the death of her father. At Leghorn also Dupont heard of his regiment, and that it had embarked for France, a circumstance which gave him great satisfaction, for he could now accompany Emily thither without reproach to his conscience, or apprehension of displeasure from his commander. During these days, he scrupulously forbore to distress her by a mention of his passion, and she was compelled to esteem and pity, though she could not love him. He endeavored to amuse her by shewing the environments of the town, and they often walked together on the seashore, and on the busy quays, where Emily was frequently interested by the arrival and departure of vessels, 
participating in the joy of meeting friends, and sometimes shedding a sympathetic tear to the sorrow of those that were separating. It was after having witnessed a scene of the latter kind that she arranged the following stanzas. The Mariner Soft came the breath of spring, smooth flowed the tide, and blew the heaven in its mirror smiled. The white sail trembled, swelled, expanded wide. The soldiers at the anchor toiled, with anxious friends that shed the parting tear. The deck was thronged, how swift the moments fly. The vessel heaves, the farewell signs appear. Mute is each tongue, and eloquent each eye. The last dread moment comes. The sailor youth hides the big drop, and smiles amid his pain, soothes his sad bride, and vows eternal truth. Farewell, my love, we shall, shall meet again. Long on the stern, with waving hand, he stood. The crowded shore sinks, lessening from his view, as gradual glides the bark among the flood. His bride is seen no more. Adieu, adieu. The breeze of eve moans low, her smile is o'er. Dim steals her twilight down the crimsoned west. He climbs the topmost mast, to seek once more the far-seen coast where all his wishes rest. He views its dark line on the distant sky, and fancy leads him to his little home. He sees his weeping love, he hears her sigh, he soothes her grief, and tells her of joys to come. Eve yields to night, the breeze to wintry gales. In one vast shade the seas and shores repose. He turns his aching eyes, his spirit fails, the chill tear falls. Sad to the deck he goes. The storm of midnight swells, the sails are furled, deep sounds the lead, but finds no friendly shore. Fast o'er the waves the wretched bark is hurled. Oh, Ellen, Ellen, we must meet no more. Lightnings that shew the vast and foamy deep, the rending thunders as they onward roll, the loud, loud winds that o'er the billows sweep, shake the firm nerve, appall the bravest soul. Ah! What avails a seaman's toiling care? The straining cordage bursts, the mast is riven, the sounds of terror groan along the air, then sink afar, the bark on rocks is driven. Fierce o'er the wreck the whelming waters passed, the helpless crew sunk in the ruining main, Henry's faint accents trembled in the blast, farewell my love, we ne'er shall meet again. Oft, at the calm and silent evening hour, when summer breezes linger on the wave, a melancholy voice is heard to pour its lonely sweetness o'er poor Henry's grave. And oft, at midnight, airy strains are heard around the grove where Ellen's form is laid. Nor is the dirge by village maidens feared, for lover spirits guard the holy shade. End of Volume 3, Chapter 9, Part C